I am Planta on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. A few weeks ago, late um, last year, uh, I got an email from the writer known as P.W. Bridgman. He uh, wanted to put on my radar his work as a writer in a forthcoming book to be published in 2023. He graciously invited me to coffee, and a few weeks ago, what was to be a short meeting where I could uh, get my copy of his most recent book of poems, Idealist Signed, ended up a good, long conversation. Uh, where we spoke at length on a wide variety of uh, subjects of mutual interest, writers, writing, his time on the bench, jazz, and uh, a lot more. It was early on in our conversation that I invited Tom to uh, the podcast to talk, and he joins me now. That morning, he uh, also gave me a copy of his collection of fiction, The Four-Faced Liar. His uh, two other books are uh, Standing at an Angle to My Age, a collection of short fiction, and a book of poems, A Lamb. Three of uh, his uh, most recent books were available from his publisher, Ecstasis Editions. You can visit uh, the website uh, pwbridgman.ca for more information. Thomas S. Woods, the man sheltered by the pen name, is a graduate of the University of British Columbia with um, graduate and postgraduate degrees in psychology and law. He worked for 10 years in the field of child behavioral therapy, then... uh, after his uh, law studies practice as a barrister for 20 years, 17 of those years as a co-editor, then editor of the legal journal The Advocate, until his retirement four years ago, he served as a judge for 12 years. Uh, we will uh, talk now about his writing and more, as time permits. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, P.W. Bridgman. Mr. Woods, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. I love switching between the, 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 the real name and the pen name, because Correct. I think um, that's where our conversation will take us, to, to these two alter egos. I guess it was important for you, uh, Tom, to to, uh, have that, the the pen name, because of professional obligations. It's true. You know, it became more important when I was a judge, but even when I was a lawyer, um, I wanted wanted to keep these two um, aspects of my life somewhat distinguished, uh, just so that neither of them would collide with the other in any unwelcome uh, way. Um, not everybody in those circumstances would necessarily take that approach, but it, it felt it felt comfortable for me. And, um, uh, you know, it, it wasn't a terribly well-kept secret, uh, yeah. but, um, but still maintaining a kind of formal distinction seemed to be the right thing to do, and, and uh, that's, that's how it worked. And I uh, of course, now I'm retired from the bench, I wouldn't have to, to yeah. keep this uh, artifice of a of a pen name any longer. But it's too I've late to go back. Enough. <laughs> it's, it's who I'm known as yeah. uh, as a writer, and so I saw no real point in in uh, kind of rebranding myself again. There, there is actually a P.W. Bridgman. Um, what does your PW, what does that stand for? I have no idea. <laughs> you know, I, this pen name was kind of plucked out of the air by me back in the early to mid-80s. Um, that is to say the pre-internet area. And I I just kind of conjured this out of nothing. Uh, later to find that there was a real P.W. Bridgman, who was a distinguished physicist and, in fact, a Nobel Nobel laureate. And so here I uh, was looking for something that was obscure, and and, uh, it turns out that uh, it's not quite so obscure. And interestingly, a year or so ago, the granddaughter of the actual 
Nobel laureate, P.W. Bridgman, uh, wrote to me and uh, asked me how I had come up with my pen name. <laughs> yeah. And I told her just what I've just told you. And we had a quite uh, pleasant exchange, but it was uh, it was uh, interesting uh, to, in a sense, meet my namesake's uh, uh, descendant anyway. And uh, uh, it hasn't, I mean, what I do doesn't... Uh, present too many challenges in terms of distinguishing when I, yeah. you know, my writing from uh, from being a physicist. So there's no real confusion there. But that question does come up once in a while. When when you Google P.W. Bridgman, it's his photo that comes up and not yours. <laughs> uh, I don't uh, ever uh, want to suggest that my uh, notoriety or my profile uh, could be or should be anything approaching that of a Nobel uh, prize-winning physicist. The, the idea that that you, you have these two sides to yourself—you you, you have more sides. You know, you're more than just a, a writer and say a, a lawyer or a judge. Um, but the idea that you have these two names, though, um, I would think that the lifestyle of each or the work of each would inform the other. Were there ever times where um, one would influence the other? I mean, to, to just. Out of thin air, were your judgments better written? Say, um, I, I wouldn't say so. There is a fairly sharp bifurcation of the two, uh, but um, you know, when you talk to writers uh, and you ask them, as writers are often asked, to what extent does your life, uh, whether it's prof- whether your professional life or your personal life, your life experience over the decades you've been living, inform your writing? Some uh, claim, I don't believe credibly, that they stay long, long way from, far away from their own life experience, and, and when they write a piece of fiction, it's true fiction, it's nothing to do with their own lives. I don't think you can divorce your uh, imaginary life, which is kind of the genesis of your mm-hmm. writing, from your life experience. So uh, in terms of the influence, of course, uh, I don't draw directly upon cases I heard or cases I tried as a lawyer. But being exposed to all of the um, remarkable conflict that one sees in a legal career, and particularly as a judge, um broad kind of general uh, insights um, come to you, and uh, I think they seep into what you uh, write, nothing detailed about the individual parties or the individual disputes. But, you know, the the courtroom is a is a, an interesting crucible, and you see human... Um, uh, you see human beings under conditions of high stress where there's you know high stakes uh conflicts and their uh characters are are um revealed in those situations and and uh i think your your appreciation for the human condition is enhanced by seeing that and i i have to believe that that filters into what i write when i'm wearing my other hat eventually when you were a lawyer and when when you were sitting on the bench um i would assume that it didn't afford you much time to write um, what was your, your say, practice in terms of, uh, say, writing poetry or fiction at the at the time that you were, say, employed? Yeah. Well, um, 
I had uh, busy careers, and I also had uh, a family in the earlier days, uh, to which I devoted uh, considerable time, as you would expect. And so um, writing was something that I had to fit into the small spaces between other obligations, and I learned to capitalize on those small opportunities. You know, it's a kind of catch-as-catch-can uh, approach that uh, you have to adopt because you simply uh, don't have the luxury of long stretches of time and you can't you can't wait for the perfect conditions you know the the, the uh, sepulchral silence of a of a book line study and uh, no interruptions and so on you snatch the moments that uh, come up unexpectedly and you uh, get down to business with those and make the most of them the the, um, the 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 fascinating thing about um, getting to know you um, as, as we did that chat several weeks ago and, and now reading your, your work of poetry and your work of fiction um, is you you seem to be someone who if they see something they like artistically music uh, I don't know about films but but let's say something that you enjoy. Um, you respond with writing of your own, mainly mm. poetry. Yeah. So is that a safe assumption on it's, my part? It is. There's a there's a type of poetry known as ekphrastic poetry, which is poetry that is written in response to um, uh, artwork, uh, visual artwork, yeah. uh, uh, mostly paintings historically, but fo- photographs and so on. Um, the idea is that you look at a piece of artwork and you sense how you respond to that artwork and then you write something and uh, so that's a, a, a quite kind of concrete example of what you're talking about and I've written a fair bit of that kind of yeah. stuff yeah um, it's marvelous to see how you work out how you feel about something as one reads say a poem or, or you know read something mm. that you've written um, because it, it is of, of sometimes mixed feelings. It's not just say awe or uh, affection. Even I think you know it, it elicits other ideas and thoughts. Um, that's the thing about poetry that I enjoy about it is, is um, I use the time to say read between the lines and try to get to know what the person really thinks. Mm-hmm. Even though sometimes one poem and one part of the book may contradict another. Right. Um, I guess uh, we want to get to know the author a little bit. Yeah. And and do you, do you find that, um, oh, I don't know, writing, uh, the act of writing for you as a writer is concealing stuff from us or, or, or sort of trying to give us hints as to, to what we need to know about the, the writer themselves? Well, um, that's probably happening, although it may not be happening... Um, as a matter of intent. Um, obviously, when I am writing a piece of fiction or a poem, and most of my poems are narrative poems, so um, I was a fiction writer first, and, and uh, storytelling is kind of uh, hardwired into me, and so most of the poetic writing I do has a kind of narrative arc as well. Um, when you're doing that kind of thing, writing um, you're drawing upon your inner resources your experience uh, 
over your lifetime, you're also drawing upon whatever it was that was the trigger for the particular piece you happen to be writing. And uh, something of yourself ends up landing on the page and staying there. Um, is that uh, the product of a, an effort to say, I'm going to reveal to this my reader uh, some aspect of my own character or my own experience that I particularly want to uh, leave with them? It's not a conscious process of that kind, but I think it, it osmotically ends up getting in there. Are there aspects of my life and experience and so forth that I would consider to be off-limits and stay away from, uh, undoubtedly? Would I be entirely successful in keeping those things entirely out of my writing? Perhaps not. But, so, uh, so then what, what happens when you're in, in front of somebody asking you questions? <laughs> um, and it... Um, uh, it invites a question that, that you might not have expected or, or wanted to even consider. Um, I would uh, do my best to answer candidly. Um, you know, there are questions that I would deflect, but um, one thing about being a writer and, you know, not just uh, taking all your writing and putting it in a desk drawer and never putting putting it before anyone is that I think there's... Um, there's a reasonable expectation if you put your work out there for people to see. Uh, there's a reasonable expectation that if you're in some sort of public um, engagement like what we're doing today, yeah. for example, that you'll be forthcoming with within obvious sort of common sense limits. But um, no, I don't feel that it would be fair or reasonable for me to um, decline to uh, do my best to answer questions about what lies behind my poems or stories no I, I feel I kind of feel I owe that to the people who have been kind enough and good enough to take some time and read what I've written are you as a, a, a poet especially as a writer as well but as a poet especially um, if you're confronted by a reader and whatever they think about a poem or if they have particular questions about a poem um, and I mean are you are you judging them if they Say, say, misinterpreted a poem by virtue of their questions or, or whatever thoughts they might have? Not at all, because um, a writer commits to writing some ideas, some feelings, an amalgam of all of those things. You spill them onto the page, you spend some time shaping and polishing and bringing it to the, the point where you are um, content with it, and then it's kind of like a balloon. You let it go, and it's now, in uh, in a sense, not exclusively yours. It's out there, and it's available to others. It's inevitable that people who read what you write will sometimes see things there that you didn't um, have in mind when you wrote what you did. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing illegitimate about having a perspective on a piece of writing that differs in some ways from what the writer had in mind. Uh, we all know that when we read anything, we can interpret that uh, text in different ways depending on our own experience and what we bring to the project of reading it. So um, I wouldn't uh, uh, I wouldn't chastise someone or 
challenge them or say uh, you've got it all wrong. I this never is what, had that's not that's not what I meant. No, yeah. uh, because really, um, in some respects, what I meant doesn't m much matter. Uh, it's what I said that matters, and no two people are necessarily going to take the same thing from what what what, uh, what when they read someone's work. I think that uh, I'm asking this in a sort of roundabout way because I think the, the rap on poetry and why it's not as widely read as it should is, is because I don't think it was taught well in school. Um, I agree. And, and I think um, when when a poem was presented to, say, a student, and I'm, I'm trying to remember now how I was taught it, and I think this is how I was taught it, was that, that uh, you, you read this text and you had to say what the, po the poet meant. Right. And if you were, and then you would be graded on it, and and perhaps some of us who um, <laughs> wildly misinterpreted something and didn't get a good mark, um, probably it, it it shut off a lot of people from poetry altogether. And that's a shame. I mean, there, um, I mean, there are uh, things that one can say about a piece of writing that can be so far off the mark that objectively they can be said to be wrong. Mm -hmm. But in terms of what is a fair interpretation to make of a piece of writing, the range is incredibly broad. And, uh, you know, I think um, my high school education, at least, was very similar to yours in this respect, that um, the poems that we studied in English literature of 12, and I'm looking back to the 1960s, mm -hmm. well, uh, they were kind of treated as puzzles, you know, that there's um, somewhere in there, there's an answer as to what the poet was getting at, and your task was to kind of kind of work your way through the thicket in this in, in search of that answer that's not a particularly helpful way to be taught to approach poetry um, or any writing for that yeah. matter um, it's maybe a small part of what you should be alerted to that there may be something uh, in there that uh, is obscure but if you think deeply and read carefully you'll find it but there, it seems to me that that approach bypasses the whole kind of aesthetic experience of approaching the piece of writing kind of on its own terms, not necessarily as a puzzle to solve, but as something uh, that uh, should be listened to for its sonorities, mm -hmm. you know, its, its musical qualities, its rhythmic patterns, the, uh, the way the, um, the, the, the lines on the page break and how that informs the interpretations you might make of what the poet's saying there's a, just it's such a multi-dimensional experience that if it's a piece of detective work and you're supposed to just try and sort of sweep away all of the obscuring content to find that little kernel of meaning yeah then you're you're denying yourself um so much of the pleasure of of uh reading poetry so how were you able to get to that place and and overcome say being taught badly if you will and i, I should say because because I, I have some of my high school teachers listening to this um i, I wasn't taught badly by particular 
teachers. I right. think it was. I think it was the system itself that. that yeah, uh, and I, w I, I would say the same thing. I, I wasn't. I wouldn't say I was taught badly. Yeah. Um, I was taught by some teachers, who uh, operated within a paradigm that was the one that they were handed, and I think the paradigm was unnecessarily limiting. Um, I did have one uh, junior high school teacher who was more uh, freewheeling, didn't respect the paradigm quite so much, and so uh, from her I got some uh, different uh, senses of how one might approach this kind of work, and uh, and and so that maybe was uh, formative in in a very early way. University though was. Uh, a whole new thing. I had a, I had a pr professor of English in my first and second years. Her name was Lorraine Weir. She still teaches at UBC. She was a newly minted Joyce Scholar, just just returned to Canada from uh, doctoral studies in uh, UC, at uh, University College Dub Dublin. She mm -hmm. was a she wrote her dis dissertation on Finnegan's Wake, one of the most extraordinary, <laughs> extraordinarily difficult. Um, uh, texts that, that we know in modern times, and she was um, she was everything that those previous paradigms um, required. She uh, her she went in an entirely different direction. We looked at a lot of modern stuff in high school. We barely touched on it. Um, she said, "Listen to these. Let's read them out loud. Let's listen. Let's let's discover the musicality in this." Um, we delved into all kinds of stuff that was just not touched on in, in high school, and a whole vista opened up. And really, I, I credit Lorraine Weir with with the, being the uh, the one who showed me and my classmates that uh, poetry and writing generally um, had a lot more uh, worth exploring and was far less hidebound and constrained than I had been shown it was before. The, the, uh, the other thing that I think daunts uh, people about poetry is that, that um, it's the idea that it's elitist. Um, and I think that turns people off from, from reading Mm -hmm. uh, books of poetry and, and even buying them. As someone who is writing, and uh, are, are you concerned about how sales are doing, say, and 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 maybe um, addressing the concerns that people, might, the, the wider buying audience, if you will, um, mm -hmm. that it is not elitist, or or I mean, or, or do, you, do you say fulfill that myth, if you will? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, um, there are poems that one reads that require a lot of effort. They require a lot of thought. They um, expect a lot of the reader. The poet has written the poetry um, in a way that necessitates m more readings than would just a simple piece of another kind of text. Um, and I don't think anyone should feel apologetic about that. Um, there's lots of other 
fictional writing choices, Ulysses, we keep coming back to him, it seems, um, and other, other writing that um, rewards that effort. But I do think that the more challenging and the more the writing demands of the reader, the more prone it is to being viewed as intentionally obscure and, 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 and um, you know, ha- elitism has something to do with, with what I think the reaction can be to that yeah. kind of writing, that, that uh, you know, someone is, is, is uh, being purposefully um, arcane in the way uh, the person is writing in order to kind of uh, make it accessible only to a tiny minority uh, who may have a particular level of education or whatever. I don't think um, I don't think there are many poets who are, you know, justly susceptible of that criticism. But perhaps there are some. I don't think there, there's anything wrong with writing work that takes some effort to appreciate, takes some um, rereading, and so on. Um, if you're just gratuitously obscure and you're trying to um, put yourself across as some kind of um, a person of such uh, high talents that uh, what you generate is yeah. uh, going to uh, bypass 90% of the reading public, then I don't think you're doing anybody a favor, including yourself. Yeah. I, I've come to uh, enjoy reading poetry because I've had to interview poets over the years, and, yeah. and I find that I do dwell on a, a book of poetry more than, say, I would a novel or a, a piece of nonfiction, because there is a lot of rereading. Yeah. Uh, and, and the ironic thing is that there are fewer words. Um, yeah. uh, the books are shorter. Um, but, uh, but I marvel at the ability of the poet, and, and, and I, I see that through, through your work, um, to say so much with so little. Uh, is that the rewriting that that, that brings you to that place, eh? Um, well, yes. Writing poetry, uh, like writing fiction, is a, a process that begins with a kind of unformed uh, or not fully formed draft and then goes through successive um, versions as the um, editing process uh, pairs it down, sometimes adds uh, text to uh, what was already there until you reach that point where you think, I think this is ready to fly on its own. But yes, it's a spare, compared to um, writing novels, for yeah. example, it's a, a very spare, compact form. You are um, using language that is freighted with meaning so that uh, a, a sp- a comparatively small number of words might set in motion thought processes in the reader that go far beyond the four corners of what's on the page. Um, yeah, that's part of the art for sure. I used the word daunt earlier. Is that an actual word? Is it daunt? Like a, Daunting? Like yeah. a, a, a bit forbidding? Uh, yeah. Oh my God, can I... Uh, um, am I really uh, up for this kind of thing? Uh, that I think that's... Uh, uh, I, I think I, I asked you. I said, uh, uh, "What um, what will daunt people?" And I don't think it's used in that form, is it? Uh, I'm not sure, but I certainly know. I certainly know. <laughs> you what knew what saying. I was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 we know that some things are daunting when yeah. we first approach them, and that 
that makes sense. I'll have to, to look it up later. Yeah, <laughs> but th- that's the thing that that, that uh, what's clear when I read th- these two most recent books of yours is that you have such a, a reverence uh, and an allegiance to language. Mm. Um, yeah, I guess you have to use words in the course of your work, whatever work you've done over the years. Yeah. Um, but as a child, I mean, I'm wondering where where did that come from? Was was that something that was instilled in you as, as a young reader, say, or? Well, certainly, um, my family, my parents placed a high value on education, on reading, um, and so I was an early reader. I got the kind of encouragement that leaves me forever grateful um, to um, spend time with books. Life was a little less complicated then. There, mm-hmm. there. Uh, when I started reading there really wasn't even a tv in the house much less all the screens and and um you know internet-based um content that seems to now uh, dominate so much in young kids life experience um i was read to regularly by my parents so i i listened to writing i as i became able to read i read voraciously i was kind of a geeky kid in that way, I guess, and um, not not much has changed over the years since. There's a, a marvelous interview that um, you gave Anne Giardini, mm. um, your friend and colleague. I guess if, if they go to your website, there's a link to that? Yep. Yeah. Um, she asks you about your heritage and, and the draw for you to the United Kingdom, and I use that term to encapsulate England, Wales, Northern Ireland, I guess. Yeah. Um, Scotland. Scotland. Um, Was this something that um, you knew growing up, that you were from that part of the world? I I knew that my ancestry um, had several dimensions, but all of it in the UK. Yeah. Uh, Well, all of it in the UK and and, and Ireland. Um, On my mother's side... um, there's an Irish strand in the in the uh, in the DNA, if you will, um, and that uh, that aspect of my heritage became increasingly interesting to me, in part because of a reticence on the part of my mother's side of the family to talk much about it, and you know, uh, if you're a young person and you discover a a subject that there seems to be hesitation to uh, you only want discuss, to go towards then it, right? that just uh, sharpens your uh, inquiry and makes you even more determined to find out more. Um, I won't go into too too much detail, but I will say that there was there's an ancestor on my mother's side who, uh, and it's very very. Um, unclear because there's just not a lot of hard information to work with, but who crossed over from the Catholic side of the religious divide to the Protestant side mm-hmm. under kind of curious circumstances. And if you know anything about Irish history and the way that um, religion has uh, uh, resonances in politics and um, and conflict over centuries, um, you'll appreciate that having an ancestor who has left one side of that uh, divide and uh, joined the other 
um, that's a somewhat seismic event in your in your ancestral history. That having happened um, left th that ancestor's successors feeling very uneasy and uncomfortable, and consequently. Um, try as I might. I couldn't winkle out all that much information about it, but it sure made me interested. So uh, the feeling that I get, it's, it's more than, uh, say, uh, genealogy at this point. I think, I think, um, I assume that there's something that you're looking for. And I'm wondering, is, is that related at all to the writing? I mean, the, the, the writing must come from somewhere. Yeah. Well, you know, um, it's invidious to uh, compare cultures uh, qualitatively, and I don't mean to suggest that I'm offering that kind of a comparison. But I will say that the very vibrant literary culture, Irish literary culture, has uh, grabbed hold of my attention and held on to it from a relatively early time uh, right up until the present. Um, if you're if you had other reasons, as I did, to be kind of orienting somewhat toward that culture because of an interest in it, it being part of your own history, and then you see how steeped it is in in, in language, uh, how wonderfully developed the uh, the poetry, the fiction, and so forth is, um, undoubtedly then. Um, your own interests as a writer are going to be shaped by what you see there. So I've got my ancestral ties to Irish culture getting me interested in the writing culture in that part of the world, and uh, that's taken me on a journey that is continuing. I mean, I, I read broadly, certainly lots of Canadian writers, uh, English, American... But more than any, but there's a disproportionate representation of Irish writing in my in my reading. Um, I've gone to uh, Northern Ireland to study writing at Queen's University Belfast, mm. the Seamus Heaney Centre there. Seamus Heaney being one of my beacons. Um, I have lots and lots of friends and writing colleagues over there. Um, I have published far more work in that part of the world than anywhere else. Yeah. Um, so there's there's something clicking between me and there. We've traveled often there. Um, I, ha I haven't been able to unravel my own ancestry because I haven't yet had the time being retired. Now I'll be able to devote more time to yeah. that. But, uh -huh. um, but even without having figured out, you know, on what street and at what address might there be a relative, um, we've got a lot of... Um, connections with people there and we renew those well we're going back again this year um after a long hiatus because yeah. of the pandemic yeah um and uh it's a very rich literary culture and it's uh it's one that i'm very pleased to participate in and to and to bring into my own uh reading and it's been great not to say at all that i'm not uh very attentive to in a uh, an enthusiastic reader of, of uh, Canadians and English and other writers, but it's it's been a bit of a focus. Has it made writing easier? I mean, the the, 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 the more in-depth you've gotten over there, 
um, reading more as you have. Um, I'd have to assume that that it it um, you get something out of it, and I don't oh, know. Oh, for it, sure. Does it make you more? Say, does it make you write more even? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, the 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 best and first advice that anyone who writes can give anyone who aspires to write is firstly read uh, read um, broadly and read uh, deeply uh, because there's there's much to be taken away from um, from the way others write and uh, you'll get inspiration from other people's writing and there's some sort of osmotic thing that happens to you 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 and I don't mean you you borrow things from other people's writing or that you write derivatively but I do say that reading other fine writers will somehow help to you to sharpen your own skills as a writer and and so all of the reading that I do and I do a lot of it um, I think helps me with my own writing and because I tend to read so much in the uh, in the genre we're talking about and, and, and coming from the places I've been emphasizing um, I think that's disproportionately um, influenced my writing for sure there's one poem in idyllic that I, I quite liked and, and um, it, it's called Howl YVR I guess yeah. it's homage to Ginsburg yeah um, it's already dated as I, I read it because a couple of the restaurants that you mentioned are <laughs> no longer around um, but for people listening who haven't read it, 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 it it's um, somebody who's complaining about, or uh, complaining is not the right word, because I, I think we all feel this about our city. We, we worry about it, mm-hmm. and we, we, we look at it in anger sometimes. Is that where, where um, the speaker in that poem comes from? Um, to an extent. Uh, uh, how YVR as you've said, is, 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 a, is fashioned on the example of Allen Ginsberg's, Ginsberg's howl. It's a full-throated rant, um, not something I write. Uh, that's not a genre that's particularly common in my writing. But every once in a while, you feel like you just got to get something off your chest. Yeah, it's a good to use musical theater parlance. It's a, it's a good eleven o'clock number. There you go. Yeah. It's an eleven, an eleven o'clock number. Um, it's not. Uh, it's it's situated in Vancouver. It uses examples from Vancouver. Uh, um, it's it's a lot of things will ring uh, familiar yeah. for a Vancouver someone who lives yeah. in Vancouver. But it's more of a rant about the treadmill, about the um, about the way that you know punishing work schedules and the uh, kind of unthinking and uncritical pursuit of of wealth and so forth can reshape your life and uh, leave you potentially nearing the end of it uh, asking that uh, question that Peggy Lee asked in that song so long ago, (laughs) Is That All There Is? Uh, So you've got references to, you know, young professionals having to be up at three in the morning because the merchant bankers in New York insist that their teleconferences start then and um, you know, their lives are just sort of um, helter-skelter, and somewhere um, you have to try and find a capital L life in all of that, and it's not that easy. And so I juxtapose all of that against 
against a person who is at the end of his life in a palliative care facility being visited by one of these um, young keeners with a, with a phone. <laughs> who's uh, sitting at the end of the bed while, while the uncle is passing away slowly, um, scrolling through his phone and making day trades and hardly <laughs> being able to restrain himself from exclaiming at the great, the great return he got on investment uh, that he just cashed in. I read that, and, and I th- um, thinking about it now, um, uh, it'd make something, you know, if, if one were to read publicly, say, you know, is it, is it one that you turn to, say, when you're doing readings, say? Yeah, I have. Uh, and <clears throat> uh, just to digress for a moment, uh, delivering what you write orally yeah. as opposed to writing it, these are two quite distinct skills. And I know... Um, I know writers who are also very good at delivery, and I also know writers who are not so good at delivery, and many in between. I I won't claim to be very good at delivery. It's one of those skills that that you have to develop. Um, just because you're a writer doesn't mean you can walk right into that part of it. <clears throat> I have some good examples, though, and and I and I know, and I will probably work harder at developing delivery but that's a poem that needs to be spoken quickly in, yeah. in so that the, the to use McLuhan's fa- phrase the the medium is the message it has to sound like a rant mm. that's a kind of high wire act when I'm doing a reading but I have done uh, readings of how YVR two or three times and it's uh, uh, and I um, I speak more loudly I speak far more quickly than I usually yeah. do and I think that's the way that poem needs to be read yeah. and if I have any sort of high points in my modest uh, career as a reader of my own work actually that one has probably been one of them um, and you, you very kindly sent me a clip of an actor in I believe in Ireland who who um, uh, filmed a, uh, a piece of, of yours, yes. performing a piece of yours. Yes. And, and, but what I found fascinating is, is, is um, however you wrote it, you probably didn't expect it that way. I think he nailed it, really. Yeah. Uh, um, but uh, I know him to be very ca- talented and capable, but he surpassed all my expectations. The poem is called um, "The Conversation." Yeah, and the actor is Donald O'Hanlon. Donald O'Hanlon. He's he's quite a um, well-regarded. Uh, he, he's a, a stage actor. He's a television and film actor. He's a director of uh, community theater. He's in Newry uh, mm. in the north of Ireland, and and he has taken a shine to my work. And uh, he asked me if it would be all right if he, uh, for this kind of film series of, of poetry readings that they did in, in Northern Ireland in December, would it be all right if he uh, chose one of my poems to read? And, and the conversation is a conversation, so there was some very uh, tricky splicing and editing mm. that was done because he, he takes one of the voices on camera, the other voice, which is... The other party to the conversation is off camera, yeah. And oh, it's done. It's done masterfully. I, I couldn't be more thankful. And you know, um, I'm not very fussed about uh, statistics and exposure and so on. You it, you know th- those things will go where they go. 
but I can't not tell you that when that was put up on Twitter, it got 3,200 and some views on the first day. Wow. Which, you know, yeah. uh, you get someone like Don Lohanlon reading your work, uh, that really is a heck of a, uh, a boost. And that I, I was so gratified and so thankful to him. He's, uh, he's an amazing person. And so what does that uh, say to you as the writer, that, that you ought to write more like that or, or write poems that, that uh, say, could be performed like that? I think, I think I'll just keep on trying to write the way I write and, and improve in the, in the usual way, but I can profit from and benefit from getting some guidance and instruction from someone with the talents of a, of a Don Wohanlon. Yeah to uh, help me improve my, my delivery. One of my writing um, group colleagues here, there's a circle of us who yeah. meet from time to time, is George McWhorter, oh, yeah. um, former... Um, poet laureate. Well, he was a poet laureate of BC, the first, of Vancouver, the first one. He headed the uh, Department of Creative Writing at UBC for several years. He was a... He's, he's, he's from Northern Ireland. He... He was a classmate of Seamus Heaney's at Queen's University back in the 60s. He's, he's connected to that whole world that so fascinates me. George is one of those people who writes beautifully and delivers brilliantly. And uh, so there's a, you know, I, I try to pick up from George when we have our writers group meetings and he's reading his stuff. I'm trying to pay attention and learn what I can from him. But I think maybe what I need to do or will do is become a little bit more purposeful and maybe even try and get someone to sit down and give me some delivery lessons because it's, you know, it's, it's like acting. It's like, yeah. it's like almost anything. Somebody who's really good at it can teach you if you, uh, if you take the time and trouble. Tom, I've, I've asked, um, um, uh, other writers this and, and I've asked religious people and, and the sort of this over the years and, and I, 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 I want to ask you this because you, you were a judge at one point and, and um, say, a viewer of life itself um, through other work. Um, you, you had many years as a therapist as well, working in psychotherapy. Um, why do people do bad things? Well, that's, that's a great imponderable. Um, we are the product of our... Um, upbringing, we're the product of the genetics that uh, shape us in a particular direction. Your genetic um, complement, if you will, interacts with the influences that occur during your the course of your development. Um, there are random factors, you know, good fortune, bad fortune, You're, you have no say in what family you're brought into, you have no say in whether or not the care you receive as a, as a baby and a developing child is up to the standard that we would consider to be appropriate. Um, there are just so many influences that um, account for the path that one's development finally follows and the choices that people make and so on that um, it's a you know it, it, 
there are myriad forces that are bearing upon individuals and, and uh, some of them positive and productive and growth promoting and some of them the opposite and uh, inevitably the outcomes for people will be as diverse as those backgrounds are um, that sounds a bit like I've dodged your question but I think uh, I think that's as close as I can come well, with I, an answer I, I've asked this question I don't know dozens of times over the last 19 years and um I don't think I'm anywhere close to, to an answer to that question. What, what I think your response to, 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 to my question today suggests is that, that um, you've looked at it um, from a different point of view than, say, I have, where, where I, I only look at someone who's done something bad. Um, you've actually thought about it, and I guess this is the, your work over the years, the variety of work, that you're, you're able to look at what compelled someone to do that mm -hmm. and these are the, the, the things that, that I, I think people when they read the newspaper for example don't think about they think about the, the bad thing itself more than anything and I, I think if, if we if we looked at it the way you have um, I don't think we would <laughs> we have an answer to, to, to the idea of why people do bad things but I think um, just a little bit closer maybe well you know and the fact that people um, sometimes do bad things, and the fact that there might be explanations or partial explanations for why they do bad things um, that are rooted in factors that were outside their control, we do live in a society where there is an imperative that there be a, a baseline level of order and where the ordinary citizen in the public square can have a, a reasonable sense of security that uh, he or she will not suffer in some way by reason of the actions of, of others around him or her. And so law intervenes to try to um, uh, establish and maintain that order and uh, accountability for one's actions is part of what is, is one of the main concerns of the law. So these explanatory factors don't necessarily excuse behavior that runs afoul of our um, community yeah. standards. And so um, when you say someone picks up the newspaper and reads about a, a thing that was done, um, the person that, that was, was bad, the person reading the newspaper has a reasonable... Uh, expectation that um, there will be something institutional in our society that will respond in some way to that, that will address the problem for the individual and be mindful of the, the, the societal expectation of, of a certain orderliness in, in the way life is lived. Um, so it's very complex. I think people look at justice to mean... Um reparations or revenge even and and that's the wrong way to look at it right well reparations is one thing yeah in other words uh, uh, and that that is built into the law you are often called upon where you have injured economically personally or whatever another 
to do something to uh, compensate them for their losses. Um, revenge is something very different. Revenge is um, revenge has no place in the law, uh, in criminal sentencing, for example. That's not a legitimate um, basis upon which to impose uh, a particular sanction on someone for yeah. doing something. Um, revenge is is uh, um, not rooted in any uh, norms that are reflected in our criminal law. Revenge. Uh, often seems to characterize the um, in-the-moment angry response people might have when they read about things that they're upset by. Yeah, they, they, if, if there is a murder, they feel that the, if, if one has taken one's life, right. that their life should be taken exactly. as well. And, you know, without I hope this doesn't sound... Um, I want this to sound right when I say that the level of legal literacy in our society yeah. about about the intricacies of the law and the and the the philosophy and the um, the objects of the law and the way the law moves in response to things that are troubling um, I think we could do a better job in uh, bringing children up understanding yeah. those things uh, and just general public education and I think the court system has a responsibility in that area. Educators have a responsibility. These things have been under-serviced, I think, in yeah. education. And uh, one of the things I used to really enjoy in my judging years, at least uh, one or two times a week, we had um, students from high schools or even elementary schools, college students, who would come to the courthouse, you know, spend the morning sitting in trial courtrooms and so on, and then... Um, judges would give up their lunch hour and you would they would all come into a courtroom and you'd uh, answer their questions and tell them a few things and it was a kind of bit by bit type of public education exercise and um, I found it fantastically satisfying yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think um, I think judges should do more of that kind of thing uh, I edit this journal for judges at the moment and that was really the thrust of the editorial in a recent issue I think we really could um, uh, there needs needs to be a better yeah. effort made in this area and and I think courts and judges can can do more I think there should be more political literacy in, in, in our society I think there should be more media literacy yeah. I sound like an elitist now <laughs> and and think that that um, I think we all should do better and yeah. and um, I think you see that in the comments and on, on websites or on, on Twitter and Facebook. That, if that, you have the <laughs> stomach to read them, I don't, uh, but there you go. Tom, I have um, enjoyed this. I enjoyed our, 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 our meeting uh, several weeks ago. I'll look forward to coffee again soon. Yes. Um, I, uh, let's, uh, let's make sure we do that because I enjoyed it every bit as much as you kindly said you did. Uh, it, oh, the, the, the novel, the upcoming novel. Um, uh, novella. It's a, novella. a little more modest. It's called uh, Deliverance 1961, full colon, uh, uh, a novella in 32 cantos. In, in a word, it's a, it's, it's a novella. It's, a sort of, it's halfway between a short story and a, and, a, and a novel, but it's written in verse. And I gave myself an incredibly 
challenging uh, rhyme scheme to stick to, and it just about killed me, but it was a lot of fun to do, and, and it's coming out this, this year. And so we'll look forward to t- talking to you uh, about that when yeah. that comes out. Thank Tom, you. I've enjoyed this. Thanks for your time today. I've enjoyed this uh, very much, and thank you for, uh, for conducting this interview. The website for more is at pwbridgman.ca. Uh, uh, Tom Woods, join me on the lo- uh, in person here in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plata.